Good morning, and welcome to Litchfield United Church of Christ podcast. Today is Sunday, January 31st, 2021. And I ask now that you join me in our opening prayer. Creator God, you reveal yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we gather in this place, Come amongst us. Help us to discern your spirit in the world around us. Let us find joy in the world that you created. Help us to worship you with all our being and to hear and receive your word and your gifts. As we think about our local community and the glory of the natural world, may we respond to you in love for our neighbors and for your creation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Creator God, as we bring before you those on our hearts and minds, we ask for your healing and calming love to flow through them and through us. The family of Lisa Messer, the family of A.C. Hill, the family of Sheena Coggins, the family of Tom O'Grady, the family of Mary Samples, Carissa Scott Singleton, Mary Sampson, Mansell Samples, Gary Longbottom, Robert Longbottom, Jim Berger, Ray Newhouser, Jim Walkham, and Mike Yost. Lord, we thank you also for all of the gifts and blessings that you have given to us this past week. Gladly we live and move and have our being in you, yet always in the midst of this creation glory, we see sin's shadow and feel death's darkness. Around us in the earth, sea, and sky, the abuse of matter. Beside us in the broken and hungry and the poor. The betrayal of one another, and often deep within us a striving against your spirit. O Trinity of love, forgive us that we may forgive one another. Heal us that we may be people of healing. And renew us that we also may be makers of peace. God, our Father, you never cease the work you have begun and prosper with your blessing, all human endeavor. Help us to be good neighbors to those who share our world today and those who will inherit our world and generations to come. Make us wise and faithful stewards of your creation, living lightly on the earth so that it continues to blossom and flourish now and in the future. We pray in the name of your Son as we speak the words he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. (music) 
Our sermon this morning is titled, Praise for God's Wonderful Works. And our scripture reading is Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Join me now in prayer. Loving Father, we praise your glorious name and pray that you would increase our wisdom and understanding of all you are to us with every passing day. For we desire to do your will in humble obedience to you. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 111 is a good psalm that turns our minds and hearts to thank God for his provision and good work. It starts, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. This would be a good verse for the call to worship. The psalm is not the private meditation of the heart, but the public exaltation of God in the assembly of his people. We are to join in with him in his praise of God. And what are we to praise God for? For his works. Verse 2 and 3 say, Great are the works of the Lord. Study by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. The words for works and work are two different words in Hebrew. Work is to worship and service, a means of glorifying and serving God by providing for the needs of others and of society. Works is a term referring to actions. However, in the Old Testament, they often overlap in meaning. I suspect the psalmist is being a good poet and using synonyms. In this context, they speak of the general works of God and his creation, both the work of creation itself and the ongoing works of sustaining that creation and acting in it. The psalmist says that those who delight in such works make a study of them. The NIV translation uses the term ponder. The King James translation uses sought out. But I like the NRSV translation of delight in such works. 
Merriam-Webster defines delight as a high degree of gratification or pleasure. And when you think about his works and teaching, delight just seems to fit. The psalmists were poets who delighted in creation. Their psalms are filled with imagery drawn from creation. Psalm 104.3 says, God makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Psalm 36.6 says, God's righteousness is like the mighty mountains, and God's judgments are like the great deep. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. The Psalms speak of God's care of creation and his work in it as well. Psalm 65.9 says, God visits the earth and waters it. Psalm 104.11 says, giving drink to every wild animal. Psalm 104.16 and 17, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. In them the birds build their nests. A few weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 29, God being the voice in a great storm. And the psalmist speaks of God's providential work. In Psalm 107, 40 through 41, it says, He pours contempt on princes, but he raises up the needy. In Psalm 146, 9, he watches over strangers and upholds the orphan and the widow. And so the psalmist looks upon the words of the Lord. They conclude that the works are great. They are full of splendor and majesty. They reveal the righteousness of God. Their study of creation, of natural processes, and of history leads them into a deeper understanding of God. And thus, all the more they glory in him. So there is the general work of creation and providential care. There's also the specific work of redemption, specifically the redemption of God's covenant people from slavery in Egypt. If we go back to our scripture reading this morning, verses 4 through 9 read, He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. God sent redemption to his people. He led them out of Egypt through wondrous works. He established his covenant with them, giving them precepts of the law, which are trustworthy. In the wilderness, he provided food, and he led them into the promised land of Canaan, giving them the inheritance of the nations who were there. This recalling of redemption again runs through the Psalms. Psalm 78, 105, 106, and 136 tell the story of the plagues and miracles. Psalm 81, 5 talks about God being the Lord God who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. Psalm 114 tells how the sea looked and fled, how the Jordan River turned back. 
Psalm 71 recounts how God caused the waters to tremble as he led his flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 78 and 105 tells how in the wilderness he provided manna and meat and water. And as the psalmists remember these wondrous works, again they make conclusions about God in Psalm 111. He is gracious and merciful. He is mindful or faithful of his covenant. His works are faithful and just, and his word is trustworthy. Their God is one whom they can depend upon to deliver them in time of need and to provide for them. Their God is holy and awesome. Of course, nowadays, awesome no longer carries the weight that it once did. We say awesome to mean something is cool or astonishing. This word means more. Maybe the best way to catch the tenor of it is to recall the story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It is dark. A strong windstorm comes up, causing waves to crash into the boat. The veteran fishermen know that they will drown. Jesus stands up and orders the storm to cease. Mark reports their response, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? They are not giving each other high fives. They are not saying to Jesus, Awesome, dude. They are scared. They know they have in the boat someone that is not like them. His mighty work shows them that, like God in our psalm, he is holy. The wondrous works of God inspire not merely wonder, but trembling fear as they display the reality that he is not one of us. His glory, his majesty, his holiness leaves the beholder saying, Who then is this? They instill in the beholder humble fear. And so the psalm concludes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so we are brought to the concluding train of thought. Look back at the beginning of the psalm. Verse 2 speaks of studying the works of God as well as the word of God. That studying leads to further understanding of the character of God. That understanding leads to a humble fear of the Lord. Such fear is the beginning of true wisdom because the very mark of wisdom is understanding one's standing before God. And such wisdom in turn leads to a good understanding of God and his ways. And a good understanding will lead to praise. We see this very line of thought and response in the Apostle Paul in chapter 11 of Romans. Paul has been laying out the complex ways of God in bringing salvation to the Gentiles and how it will play out as well to the blessing of the Jews. And then he cannot help himself as he considers the wondrous ways of God. It leads to spontaneous praise starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor 
or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return. For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul and the psalmists cannot study the work and ways of the Lord for long without breaking forth into praise. Let's turn now to us. Whenever I read a psalm extolling the works of God, I cannot but think how we should be in greater awe than any of the psalmists. Think about this. Consider the matter of studying God's general works of creation and his work in it. Do you think the psalmists, when they looked up at the stars and had a concept of the immensity of the universe that we have? What if the psalmist who wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork? What if they had opened up their recent issues of National Geographic, looked at the photos of the Milky Way galaxy, and read this, Our galaxy is far larger, brighter, and more massive than most other galaxies. From end to end, the Milky Way's starry disk spans 120,000 light years. Encircling it is another disk composed mostly of hydrogen gas, and engulfing all that our telescopes can see is an enormous halo of dark matter that they can't see. While it emits no light, this dark matter far outweighs the Milky Way's hundreds of billions of stars. Indeed, our galaxy is so huge that dozens of lesser galaxies scamper about it, like moons orbiting a giant planet. Do you think the psalmist might have been even more impressed with the glory of God if they had the tools or knowledge that we have today? What if the psalmist had seen movies like The March of the Penguins or watched the Discovery Channel? Do you think they would have written with even more feeling about God, feeding animals and providing water to drink? For me, the most baffling puzzle of all is how scientists and naturalists can be atheists. I just can't understand it. When a psalmist writes, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, surely they must be thinking, if you only knew how fearful and wonderful your body really is. Every part of creation, even its simplest element, is wonder upon wonder. Or consider the psalmist's view of God's word. They speak of his precepts being trustworthy. We, thousands of years later, can still attest to the same truth. The measure of time, a time filled with attacks against the written word, constant questioning of the word's veracity, has failed to diminish its power. Generation after generation after generation still attest to God's precepts being trustworthy. And not only is it about time, but about people. People of more tongues and locations and customs, more than the psalmist ever knew have come to know the same precepts and live by them, even scientists. So surely we have greater reason to be impressed with the ancient precepts that have endured over the centuries. But even more than the knowledge we possess about creation and about the written word is the knowledge we possess about God's wondrous work of redemption. 
When the psalmist looks back at the great work of redemption of God for his people, they are thinking of his delivering them from Egypt. They are taken from a piece of land and settled in another piece of land. I know this is a simplistic way of looking at it, but nevertheless, it captures the gist of the redemption. It was a redemption that was intended to make possible a change in the hearts of those who experienced it and to set up the stage by which the people could serve God. Do I need to argue that the redemption of Jesus Christ is greater than that of the Exodus? Was not the shedding of Christ's blood greater than turning rivers to blood? Was not victory over death and sin greater than the victory over the Egyptian army? Did not the incarnation of the Son of God prove to provide greater bread from heaven than the manna in the wilderness? Was not the parting of the veil in the heavenly temple greater than the parting of the Red Sea? Do we not now have a greater high priest in Jesus Christ than Aaron ever proved to be? And has Jesus Christ not mediated a supremely greater covenant than Moses? For all the miracles attributed to Moses, did he rise from the dead? Did he ascend on high? Do we look to his return in glory? Do we not look to our own resurrection into glory because of the redemption won by Jesus Christ? Should we not then all the more give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation? Indeed, should we not praise the Lord with even stronger voices? We, above all, should know that the praise of the Lord endures forever. Let us not be put to shame by psalmists who, at best, could only see the shadows of what we know and see clearly. What we should be learning from such a psalm is this, is the connection between the study of God and His ways and of praise. Whether your training is limited to personal devotions or you are a seminary student studying for a theology class, your study should be leading you to the praise of God and to greater trust in Him. As we have already noted, the psalmist looked at the works of God and from them concluded the traits of God. The more by studying creation and history, they grew in awe of God as creator and provider. The better understanding they had of God himself and the more trusting they became of him due to understanding that he is merciful, gracious, and faithful. As they studied his word and recounted his work of redemption, they developed a deeper, humble fear of him. And all of this study caused them to take delight in him. Or one could say that because they delighted in him, they all the more desired to study him. They were not like many Christians today who just aren't into the theology. They just want to know the basics and, more importantly, what is needed to be a better person, a better father or mother, better at sinning less or doing right things more. 
They are like me when it comes to computers. Sometimes I just don't understand, and I admit on occasion when I ask my son for help and he starts to explain something about how it works or how to do it, my eyes will just glaze over. I don't want to know. I'm not interested in it. I just want him to fix it. I don't delight in computers, at least to the degree of wanting to study them. I like the results, but I am quite satisfied with the explanation that they work by magic. The same with a car. I could care less what is under the hood as long as the engine turns on. But car enthusiasts are passionate about knowing what makes the engine run, just the same as computer enthusiasts are about their computers. They wax eloquent about the inner workings of such things. Should Christians not be the same about God and his works? Should we not listen with expectation to preaching that takes us into the mysteries of God and his works, especially his work of redemption? Some Christians don't care about how practical what they are learning is, any more than they would care about the details of a car enthusiast studying his favorite car. And yet it is because of that very enthusiasm that they learn what is really practical. I mean, if I had a real interest in computers, I wouldn't have to call my son every time I have trouble and who gently, because he is my son, tells me the simple procedure to get my problem solved. Really, what is more practical than learning how gracious and merciful and faithful our God is? What is more practical for overcoming sin and for living a righteous life than to study the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? It is those who know God best that know how best to live. It is those who know Jesus Christ and his great redemptive work who know best how to be gracious and merciful and faithful themselves. And it is those who know God and his wondrous ways best who praise him the most and take the greatest delight in him. I don't mean just head knowledge. I could be forced to learn more about computers if I needed the knowledge to pass a test or if I wanted to be recognized for my knowledge. It is the one who delights in the knowledge who then grows in admiration for God and who then learns how to benefit from that knowledge. And this, by the way, is the key to true humility, delighting in God, delighting in what you learn about God. And it is true humility that leads further into knowledge. See how it all works together? To delight in God is to desire to study God. To study God leads to further delight. Such delight is made possible by humility, which itself naturally blooms as one learns more about God, which is also wrapped up in the fear of the Lord, a fear that anyone who knows God delights in. And the fear becomes deeper as, well, you get the picture. However you came into today's service, whether to give thanks to God or to seek refuge from your troubles, may you leave with a desire to study the wondrous works of God and return with the desire and delight to praise Him. Amen.
Thank you for being with us today. We hope that you enjoyed today's message. I ask now that you join me in our closing benediction. Beloveds, today we have envisioned expressions of the good news. Let us go forth to bring our imaging to life. Together we share in the work of healing and service, bearing the light of the dusk and the dawn. And so may the blessing of our Creator, Redeemer, and Comforter shine down upon you always. Amen. Amen.